So when I was in high school, we would have these monthly assemblies where everyone, you get to kind of miss class, head off to an auditorium, and sit while inspirational speakers advised you why it was so bad to, to drink alcohol and take drugs. They would describe, often sometimes in uh, overly descriptive detail, about the spread of STDs and why you don't want those in your life, and also how to overcome odds and reach for the stars. And we would have politicians, former athletes, like local celebrities, and oftentimes people who would like juggle chainsaws as they told you how to juggle life circumstances. That was kind of their big message. You get all kinds of people coming in, telling you how to live life and encouraging you. And during my sophomore year, my friend Dominic and I began to notice a trend. In fact, after th- in three consecutive school assembly messages, we heard people say at the end of every message, be who you are. Be your own person. Don't let anyone else or any other relationship affect who you are. Be your own person. Don't let anyone else, any other relationship affect who you are. We heard it three consecutive months. And so we decided as sophomores, which literally means wise fools, to, to live that out uh, in our lives. And uh, we acted accordingly. We went out and we bought matching shirts, matching shorts, and matching socks. So the next time we had an assembly and someone said, be your own person. Don't let anyone else affect you or any other relationship affect who you are. We would can go up to the speaker and say, to them, dressed completely alike. Oh, we couldn't agree more. Be your own person. And hopefully they would see the irony of that. We thought we were being funny. So we did that. So the person literally on cue said, be your own person. Don't let anyone else affect who you are. Don't let any other relationship determine the person you're going to be. And so my friend and I thought it'd be funny. We got up. We got our <laughs> matching shirts, shorts and, sh- and socks on. We went up to the person and said, so we're going to say, like, we couldn't agree more. Now, unfortunately, this speaker happened to be a a fashion designer. And so they said, yeah, I get the point. Unfortunately, you guys, you're dressed terribly. (laughs) Yeah, like all fashion sense. And so we kind of walked away humiliated, out 30 bucks, and I think the guy missed the point. On the opposite coast of the United States, my future bride was hearing the same message hammered into her head, except that she and her friends decided they would actually do something about it. They would take actions, more her friends than her. They became what was known as straight-edge kids. They determined not to let any relationship determine their personality, define who they were. And so they'd observe certain friends of theirs sort of indulge in, in alcohol and drugs, and they saw how it affected who they became. And they decided we were not, we're going to say no to all those things so that their identity would not be changed. Well, what do you think happened? If you say no enough to something and you keep saying no and that becomes who you are, What happened was they became passionate and obsessed with saying no to alcohol, drugs, and to any other person who did those things, such that their former passions all diminished. Sports, church, God, art, all these things diminished compared to this obsession with saying no to something else, such that that became their identity. Their identity was reactionary, saying no to something else, being anti all that bad stuff. And that became to influence and shape who they were, straight-edge kids. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because relationships define who we are and influence who are we, we are becoming because you and I are created to be relational. At our core, we are relational beings, and we are affected by the relationships we have with other people and other things in this world such that they do define us and influence us. Make no mistake about it. 
The question is, which relationship will influence us the most? That's really the ultimate question. Not will we be influenced, but which relationship will we allow to influence us the most? The Bible speaks to this reality. First, the God who made us is a relational God who himself is defined relationally. So you think about it. We have God the Father, a Father, and God the Son. And then God the Holy Spirit, that crazy neighbor next door, right? And sometimes he's seen that way, but of course he is not. But think about that. Contrary to popular opinion, God didn't create human beings because he was lonely. And some people think that, right, that, that God wanted to love someone and wanted someone to love him back. So he created human beings, but that is not why God created human beings. He wanted to share that love, but, but love already existed in community, in relationship. It always has been what C.S. Lewis once called this divine dance. Only now God has decided to add a fourth dance partner, you. You can be involved in that. So when a person gets involved in this divine relationship by trusting their life to Jesus, the Bible calls that person something relationally. Son or daughter to the father, an heir to the king, a bride to the groom. These are the words used to define those who trust in Christ. Before that, they are called things like enemies, outsiders. In other words, no matter what, the reality of your life is that you are defined relationally. Now, what does all that have to do with Easter? In the last week of Jesus' life on earth, we observe the weakness of every relationship. We see the cementing of a new kind of relationship. And a powerful possibility opens up for every one of us here today. So that's what we're going to see this morning. The weakness of every relationship, the cementing of a new relationship, and a powerful possibility for every one of us here today. Okay, so first, the weakness of every relationship. And to identify what the weakness of every relationship is, we're going to look more deeply at Jesus' most talkative, bold disciple, a man named Peter. So we're going to begin first with John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38, which if you want to follow along, it's going to be on page 771 if you want to use one of the Bibles we provide in these chair pockets at the end of these aisles, okay? But you can also watch and listen, even as you follow along, because we're going to use the film, The Gospel of John, the 2003 film, Gospel of John, directed by Philip Seville, which we'll be using kind of throughout this message this morning. So first, we're starting in John 13 and getting a picture of Peter. Let's watch together. Where are you going, Lord? You cannot follow me now where I am going. But later you will follow me. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I am ready to die for you. Are you really ready to die for me? I'm telling you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will say three times that you do not know me. Do not be worried and upset. Believe in God. And believe also in me. Let me give you a quick profile of this man, Peter, we saw up there on the screen. Peter is many a sinner's favorite disciple because so many of us can relate to him. He's full of life and conviction and just jumps out into the world, sometimes without thinking. He's he's usually the first to speak up when words are needed, but as we see here, he doesn't often know the right words to say. (laughs) He just knows he should say something. Lord, I'm ready to die for you. Are you, Peter? He's passionate but impulsive, whether it's 
rebuking Jesus for Jesus' plan of salvation, which is to go to a cross, or cutting off someone's ear when they threaten his master. He's passionate but impulsive. He's, he's bold, which is a great quality, right? But he rarely thinks through a plan. And so Jesus asks if he can come out to, or Peter asks if he can come out to Jesus when Jesus is walking on the water. Peter thinks, yeah, let me walk out to him. And then he looks at the water and he's like, this is a bad plan. Right? He starts to sink. I kind of think of Peter, tell me if this sounds right to you, kind of like that nephew or maybe cousin of yours who has a ton of potential but sort of needs someone to master it. And so you ask if they've ever considered the military. You ever had you ever that kind of relationship? Like, have you thought about the Army or the Navy or one of, one of you know, the British military? Because there you know you can, you can get what you might need. And, and secretly what we mean is leadership, discipline in their life. You know that kind of person? Peter is that kind of person. And in Jesus, Peter finds his leader. He finds his master. No one submits with humility like Peter does. No one seeks to understand Jesus nor relentlessly defends Jesus when he's attacked like Peter. Until the day, that is, when Jesus' leadership is not only stripped away from Peter, but seems hopelessly lost. That Jesus will never really be Peter's leader again. That is when Jesus is arrested. Jesus is arrested and is tried for crimes he didn't commit. And then we see Peter respond to Jesus' arrest. Watch this in John chapter 18, starting in verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. That other disciple was well known to the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest's house, while Peter stayed outside by the gate. Then the other disciple went back out, spoke to the girl at the gate, and brought Peter inside. Aren't you also one of the disciples of that man? No, I'm not. It was cold, so the servants and guards had built a charcoal fire and were standing around it, warming themselves. So Peter went over and stood with them, warming himself. Peter was still standing there, keeping himself warm. So the others said to him, Aren't you also one of the disciples of that man? No, I am not. But Peter denied it. One of the high priest's slaves, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, spoke up. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? No. At once, a rooster crowed. There are four accounts of this instances of, 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 G, of Peter denying Jesus. And I personally, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this. And I personally read these accounts dozens, probably hundreds of times. But reading it this week, I noticed, last couple of weeks really, I, I noticed a different detail but I think an important detail that really stood out in John's account of Peter's denial of Jesus. John emphasizes, unlike sort of the other uh, accounts, which give a brief detail, but John emphasizes Peter's strong desire to first get in this courtyard. He's willing to wait outside the door, right? He's willing to wait there until he would get in and to warm himself once in it. 
And notice how he, he sort of buddies up to those who could warm him, servants and officers who helped build the fire that could keep him warm. And of course, to whom does he deny Jesus? To servants and to officers. All the while, it says, Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself, verse 18. And when we return back to the narrative after a brief break, John emphasizes the same thing in verse 25, chapter 18. Simon Peter was standing, still warming himself. And there's, there's a very real sense that once Jesus ceased being useful to Peter, and remember, Jesus is arrested. It looks like he'll never be Peter's leader again. Once Jesus ceased being useful to Peter, Peter sought out other useful relationships. So you might say, well, Ryan, are you saying that Peter traded away a relationship with the Son of God for relationships that could get him warm? Like, just, just to make him more comfortable? For, like, a base desire like warmth, hunger, temporary security, these sorts of things? It wouldn't be the first time we would see that in John's gospel. It's not so far-fetched. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. He then departs and heads over to the other side of a sea, the Sea of Galilee. And when people notice, whoa, Jesus is gone, they run after him. And when they find him, what does Jesus say? So great to see you guys again. I know you came back for the great teaching, to hear the good news. Or so great to see you again. I know you came back to see my miracles, to see my power. No, what does he say? Instead, he says, the truth is, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you saw a miraculous sign. In other words, Jesus was constantly surrounded by people who just wanted to be fed, who just wanted to be comfortable, who just wanted their base desires met. What about the time in John chapter 2 where Jesus' mom pressures him to do what? To make more wine. Just to make more wine. To avoid a, a social gaffe. So we see these instances where people come to Jesus really ultimately to use him. Jesus was now so absent that Peter prioritized a need for warmth over a relationship with Jesus. And let's not be too quick to judge Peter on this. I think we, we see this and we think, man, why would you deny Jesus, Peter, I, I can't get my head around that. Well, because the starting point, but also the weakness of every human relationship, is usefulness, is being useful. Now, usefulness, when you think about that on the surface, is good, right? If you have a relationship with someone, you probably came with someone this morning, someone next to you, a son or daughter, maybe, maybe a spouse, maybe a friend, maybe someone who invited you this morning, and you reluctantly came, and we're glad you're here. But the starting point for any relationship, the starting point is usually usefulness. We, we, we want insight from a person, and we want to give them insight. We want affection from a person, right? And in turn, give them affection. We, we want to even work for someone. They'll work for us when, when, when we need help. And that's all well and good until the other person stops giving us insight, until they cease with their affections, until they no longer display that sense of humor that we enjoyed about them. When they don't produce like they used to, they don't respond to the text when we need them most. In short, they stop giving, so neither will we. If they go absent, then we will eventually also. And that's how relationships tend to work, right, as a starting place. Even those among us who are charitable and give to people in need, we see someone in need and we give to them, 
And we give of ourselves. We say, Ron, we're not using that person. But how many times have you truly given to someone, especially someone in need, ultimately to feel good? To feel good about yourself? To feel like you've done something? To feel like you've accomplished something because you've given to them? Then what are you doing in that relationship? You're using the person. Not Not that it's not helpful, not that the person didn't benefit by that, but in terms of you and your heart, You're using a person. The Bible paints a very clear and realistic picture, as much as it might punch us in the mouth, that we are, at the core, consumers because of something in us called sin, something we're born with called sin. We will usually thus be primarily concerned with satisfying self, with protecting self, with exalting self because of the sin that lives within us. It's true of Peter's most valued relationship that once Jesus became less useful, he abandoned that relationship. He ditched it. But there is good news both for Peter and for us. There's a new kind of relationship possible. And for that, we're going to focus, take our focus away from Peter and look to Jesus. Jesus spent his uh, years on earth nurturing a relationship, lived out right in front of the disciples. It was the most important relationship to him, and it was that with his father. In fact, Jesus looks to the father for, for the three things that all of us look to ours for. Approval, time, and provision. Think about your relationship or lack thereof with your father. What are, those, what are the three things you most, my guess is things, three things you want most. On that list will be approval, time, and provision. So 25 times Jesus asked his father to provide his needs and the needs of those whom he loves. And those are just the times that the disciples witness. Not all the other times he's praying and asking his father for help, for provision in his life. 11 times Jesus retreats for quiet time alone, just one-on-one time with his heavenly father. And again, only, those are only the times we hear about in the Bible. Twice we hear a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus always sought the the smile of his father, wanted his approval. And so Jesus also said in John chapter 6, I do nothing on my own authority. I speak just what the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus cultivated a vibrant relationship with his father on earth a relationship that existed in eternity but was continually fostered while on earth. Jesus' radical trust in his Father characterized this new kind of relationship, a relationship based on trust, not usefulness, but trust, even when usefulness didn't seem to be there. A new kind of relationship, and that was about to be tested. Jesus was going to be abandoned to death, a death he did not deserve. And before we kind of see that on screen here in a minute and talk about it, why was that? Why was he abandoned to death? Why did, why did Jesus have to die? Because of both justice and love. That God is just. We, we are users and consumers. Deep down, we kind of know this is true more often than we'd like to admit. Jesus lived out the only relationship of perfect trust so he could qualify as the only innocent human to volunteer for the just judgment deserved by users and consumers. Imagine, if you would, a courtroom. Okay, and everyone in this courtroom, including yourself, is guilty. Some of the infractions are smaller than others. Some of them are big infractions. Some of them are small, jaywalking, 
parking tickets, this sort of thing. Now, everyone then is deserving of a sentence, a punishment. But no one can volunteer for their friend. You can't volunteer for someone else. Someone else can't volunteer for you because they have their own crime, their own sentence to carry out. The only one who can volunteer to take your place and, and, and serve the sentence that you deserve is an innocent person, a wholly innocent person. There's only one person who's been innocent, who's walked and lived in this world, and that is Jesus Christ. Only he could volunteer, and out of love, he did. So he he had to live this perfect life of trust, and then he had to volunteer to take the punishment that we deserved. So watch, starting in John chapter 19, 28 through 30, this relationship of trust that kept on happening even when Jesus was abandoned in the end. John chapter 19, 28 through 30, Jesus on the cross. Jesus knew that by now everything had been completed. And in order to make the scripture come true, he said, I am thirsty. A bowl was there, full of cheap wine. So a sponge was soaked in the wine, put on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted up to his lips. Jesus drank the wine. It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. many things we could say about that moment. But I want us to see this morning, and what, what you witnessed there was a radical, radical trust. Radical trust. See, guys, Jesus was increasingly abandoned until his life was extinguished, snuffed out. Nearly all of those closest to him, all for whom he would die, abandoned him. All abandoned him, including his father. Because Jesus took the place of those full of mistrust, users and consumers, his father couldn't be near him. He couldn't look upon him. He had to be completely separate from Jesus because Jesus was taking the sin of the world upon his shoulders, sin the most detestable thing in God's sight. So the father couldn't be with him at that moment, completely abandoned, not only then by human companions, but by his eternal father. And yet he did what we could not trust. In that moment, trust. Jesus gave up his spirit. To to give up one's spirit is literally to hand over for safekeeping. In Luke's gospel, Jesus actually says, into your hands I commit my spirit, speaking to his heavenly Father. He was handing himself over for safekeeping to the Father who wasn't even there for him. You talk about a leap into the darkness. That's what Jesus did for us. The Father, though, would not disappoint, leaving open to us a powerful possibility. Let's watch John chapter 20. And we're going to pick up here in John 20 after Jesus, or sorry, uh, Peter and John find the tomb empty, a stone rolled away, and Mary walks in to an empty tomb. 
Then the disciples went back home. Mary stood crying outside the tomb. While she was still crying, she bent over and looked in the tomb. And saw two angels there, dressed in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head, the other at the feet. Woman, why are you crying? They asked her. They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. Then she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Who was it that you were looking for? She thought he was the gardener, so she said to him... If you took him away, sir, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary. She turned toward him and said in Hebrew... Rabboni. This means teacher. Do not hold on to me. Because I have not yet gone back up to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to him who is my Father and their Father. My God and their God. So Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and related to them what he had told her. It was late that Sunday evening and the disciples were gathered together behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Then Jesus came, stood among them. Peace be with you. After saying this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy at seeing the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Then he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive people's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Unless I see the scars of the nails in his hands and put my finger on those scars, and my hand in his side. I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were together again indoors, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Put your finger here and look at my hands. Then reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop your doubting and believe. 
my Lord and my God. Do you believe? Because you see me. How happy are those who believe without seeing me? In his disciples' presence, Jesus performed many other miracles which are not written down in this book. But these have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him, you may have life. So Jesus trusted his otherwise absent father, and the father raised Jesus from the grave. So so the message this morning in a nutshell is this, and I think the good news, the possibility is this. Jesus related rightly when abandoned, so we might also when we feel abandoned. Jesus related rightly when abandoned, so we might also when we feel abandoned. Now there's a very slight but but, but gravely mistaken way to, to interpret this. And that is that Jesus is a good example of how we re- can relate well to God, how we can relate well to others, sort of just be like Jesus, look to his example, look to him as a good person, a moral person, a gentle and upright person, a humble person. He rose from the dead to empower us to radically trust God, just as he trusted God, just as he trusted his Father. That is why Jesus rose from the dead. Here then, this is the powerful possibility open to us. Actually, three possibilities we saw in this passage in in John chapter 20. Jesus puts his life in all who would trust in him, including us into this eternal love relationship with God. He includes us into this divine dance, the fourth partner. We can have it just as he did. The same kind of love, if you can imagine, that Jesus has shared with his Father from eternity. And that's why he talks about receiving the Holy Spirit here, that Jesus breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. That's who the Holy Spirit is, Jesus' representative living inside you. That was the Holy Spirit's role to speak Jesus' words, to act with Jesus' heart, to help you think with Jesus' mind, and to help you trust radically like Jesus did. So that's a possibility you have through Christ. Secondly, you can trust God the Father, just like Jesus did. Even when there's times when the, when the God feels so far away, feels like he's maybe turned his back on you, just feels distant, you can trust as Jesus did. He, now, he physically drew near to all the disciples, including Thomas, and over 500 people on record to prove his victory was no joke. For sure he did that, but he also then purposely says for us to benefit, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Well, who did that first? Jesus did. He didn't see. He didn't feel the Father. All he felt was the curse of mankind upon him, and yet chose to believe without seeing. That's possible for us as well. A third possibility, you can forgive others for using you and abandoning you. So verse 20 speaks of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And verse 21 explains that we're empowered to offer forgiveness in turn. There's a connection there between God living inside of us and the power with which we can extend forgiveness to others. Because all of us have experienced abandonment. All of us experience feeling used by other people, even those closest with us, maybe even the person sitting next to us. 
And we can say that because you can also forgive that person through Christ. You remember Peter, who we last saw abandon Jesus for relationships more useful. Well, Jesus restores Peter. Because of the resurrection, Jesus can restore Peter. And the way he does this, the way he chooses to go about this is through a command to Peter. He says, feed my sheep, tend to my lambs, feed my sheep. And that may sound like an odd way to restore someone. Give them a command to feed sheep. First of all, think of who are sheep. Very loved, very helpless animals. In other words, Peter, invest in the kinds of relationships where you might not get a return on investment. Invest in the kinds of relationships where people might not give to you as you've given to them. In other words, invest in relationships that might not be useful to them. The only way you can do that is through the power of Jesus' life in you, Peter. He can do this because he can now trust as Jesus trusted, forgive as, as Jesus forgave him. I was 16 years old when God powerfully began opening my eyes to this new kind of relationship. Now, 16 years old, I'm going back to a high school story, and you might think, well, that was high school. But uh, look, high school, as author Kurt Vonnegut once said, that is closer to, maybe to the core of human experience than any other period in life. Right? You experience a lot of highs, a lot of lows, and a lot of reality checks in high school, and I did as well. Now, I enjoyed two things more than anything else heading into high school. Sports and humor. All right, that probably surprises none of you. Like, that's pretty much you today, Ryan. And that, that would be true. I do love those things, plus now Jesus so in high school, I sought friends who were athletes, but also were funny. And so, of course, I chose friends who were on water polo team because, you know, you have to have a sense of humor if you're men shaving your legs constantly, which was true in water polo. So uh, that's who I chose. And I sought out friends like that. And, and over a period of weeks in my sophomore year, I started to notice something. When, when certain members of my group of friends weren't kind of being funny, when they weren't garnering attention for our group, They were kind of slighted. They were kind of ignored a little more, kicked to the side a little more, not responded to as much, including myself. I experienced this too, and it started to make me wonder, are all relationships like this? Are all relationships just basically people using each other? Now, as a 16-year-old, I think that's an abnormal thought, and I, I think that was God beginning to work in me and to open my eyes to the truth of what I really needed in my life. I, I sought out two friends of mine that I loved and respected and happened to be kind of a a teenage couple, Sarah and Adam. And I asked them questions along these lines, questions that I know that no one had ever asked them, so it kind of got them thinking. I said, Sarah, why do you have a relationship with Adam? Like, like what do you need or what do you get out of that? And and she said, deep down, I really just want someone who's going to call me at night and help me feel like I'm not alone. Now, is that the worst thing in the world? Is that the most evil thing in the world? No, of course not. But she is using him. Ask Adam the same question. What's about Sarah that makes you want to relate with her? It's like, well, honestly, I just want someone who's going to laugh with me and support me when I'm going through hard things. Is that the worst thing in the world? No. But he is using her. And waking up to this reality honestly drove me guys into a bit of a tailspin. My parents who were with me this morning thought it was all maybe about drugs and alcohol, and yes, that was involved too, granted. But really it was about waking up this reality that relationships are based on people using each other at their core. That's a hard thing to awaken to and to even realize about myself. 
until I started experiencing Christian friendships. People who love me, even though I brought nothing to the table, even though I had nothing to give, they still love me. Where did that come from? How does that work? When everything else we experience about the world is different. You bring something to the table, I bring something to the table. Otherwise, take it away. And at that moment, a powerful possibility was at once open to me to involve myself in a new kind of relationship, a divine one between God the Father and God the Son. Soon I was able to trust, even when I felt abandoned, forgive, sticking with relationships, even when people left me, kicked me to the curb, or used me. I could stick with it because of the God who lived inside of me. So for all of you here this morning, all of you who've used and you've been used, you've abandoned, but you've also been abandoned. There is a powerful possibility of a new kind of relationship. Consider starting that journey with me today. Starting that journey because the Father and the Son are ready to receive you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for coming to this earth, coming to relate rightly when abandoned so that we might also one day relate rightly when we feel abandoned and when we feel used. You opened up for us this new possibility, this new kind of relationship because you trusted in your Father even when he abandoned you on the cross. You trusted him to raise you from death You were sent into the abyss, and yet you still trusted him. And he did, and you were raised from death. Hallelujah. Raised not just because, but raised to offer us this powerful possibility, a new kind of relationship available to every one of us here this morning, full of trust, full of self-giving, full of forgiveness and faithfulness, even when we don't experience it from others. We can give it to them because of what you've done for us, and because the power of the resurrection has allowed for you to live inside of us and include us in this divine relationship for now to evermore. Amen. Hallelujah.